Josh, and you're listening to WCBN FM Man Arbor. afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased to be speaking with D.T. Max, um, coming to us via phone. Um, welcome, D.T., to the program. Well, thanks for having me on. And we're, we're, I know that you've just, you're traveling for Thanksgiving, so thanks for um, managing to find a way to fit this into the, the, the day before the holiday. Yeah, I'm in West Hampton Beach, New York. Okay, so speaking to us from New York—that's that's wonderful. Um, was your was your journey okay by by um, road today? Because I've heard it's pretty dicey out there. No, I, we we left early, um, so we got here early. It was all it was all more than fine. Oh, that's. Good. I mean, I wouldn't want to be driving now, but of course I'm not. So right, you're you're talking on live radio. Right. Well, not well, safe, other people not are safe to drive and talk on live radio. Everyone knows that. <laughs> exactly, but still, it's nice to have a public service announcement now and then. So, thank, yeah, thank right. you, <laughs> thank you. Um, so, today we're going to be talking about your your New York Times bestseller, "Every Love Story Is a Ghost Story: um, A Life of David Foster Wallace," um, out out last year with Penguin Books. Um, and and before we start, DT, I'm going to read. Your, your short bio um, from your website so that we can, um, and then maybe we can fill in some of, some of the pieces for, okay. for your bio as well as uh, David Foster Wallace's here. Um, D.T. Max is a graduate of Harvard University and a staff writer at The New Yorker. His new book, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, A Life of David Foster Wallace, was released by Viking Penguin on August 30th, 2012, and was a New York Times bestseller. He is also the author of The Family That Couldn't Sleep, A Medical Mystery. He lives in New Jersey with his wife, their two young children, and a rescued beagle who came to them named Max. Um. <laughs> it's true. He's right here by my side now. Oh, what a good dog! No rescue, still named Max. I love that he's Max Max. Yeah, well, he's actually Max the Beetle is his formal name on his dog tag with a little trademark. Max the Beetle with a trademark because I'm going to trademark the name and 
and I, I see I'm going to market treats with it. Are you serious, DT? No, I'm not. But, oh, oh. But, I did, but I am serious up to a point in that he, he does have a trademark name, and I was, I mean, I was intending to do all of that. I just never got around to it. But his name on his dog tag is a little TM on it. I do. I love that. Oh, that's great. And and do you ever just as um, well, I know his like full name is Max the Beagle, yeah. but um, do you ever call him Max Squared, or are you sort of? No, I, you know, I I I am quite formal with him. Oh. Okay. <laughs> uh, and call him Max the Beagle. But it does remind me of a David Foster Wallace story, which is that when David Foster Wallace first uh, began writing to Don DeLillo, uh, you know, they it, had a correspondence, and it's a, a wonderful correspondence that you can find uh, at the University of Texas in the Ransom Center archives. I actually saw this correspondence years ago before I was writing about David, because I did an article for The New Yorker about the Ransom Center. Anyway, in the first letter he writes to DeLillo, he calls him, Mr. DeLillo, because that was, David was quite formal with people. As was his way, yes. Yes, as was his way. And then on the second um, or third letter, it's Dear Don. And then by the fourth or fifth letter, it's Dear D squared. <laughs> oh, I love so had, that. <laughs> so had he known my beagle, we would indeed have been probably Max squared. Yeah, or M squared. Yeah, or, yeah. well, DT Max itself is a, is a mathematical equation, so... It would oh. have liked that as well. But we didn't know each other. I mean, uh, Yeah, I saw that in the, yeah. in the book. Cause... He knew who I was. What's interesting is Dave Foster Wallace did know who I was because when I was researching Every Love Story, The Ghost Story, I came upon some of his journals. And in one of them, he had quoted an article I'd written years ago about the relationship between the editor, Gordon Lish, and the writer, Raymond Carver. And he had written, he had pulled a sentence from it describing Lish's fiction. And he had written next to it something like, Dan Max, nice nice phrase and the fact that he knew my name you know you don't just know it from dt max you have to actually know who i am right so that was pretty rewarding for me that he that he did know who i was as a writer and and what year was was that note made dt wasn't that i mean well so david dies in 2008 and the journals are late uh in his life the ones that we have and so i think it's about no actually i'm wrong it, it's not the, the journals the, the journals are from all of the the, the journal where this appears is around 1998, 1999, which is when the article on Lish and Carver came out. So he must have read it when it came out. Um, and, yeah, there's a couple of the journals. There's a big gap in the journals, but there is one from around then. And that was a piece you did for, for The New Yorker? No, that was before I worked for The New Yorker. It was a, uh, a, an article for The New York Times Magazine. Oh, okay. Uh, and it was about how Gordon Lish had kind of rewritten Raymond Carver's fiction in a way that Carver probably would not have written it himself and the kind of the battle between Carver and Lish and Carver's attempts to kind of get rid of Lish and Lish's feeling that he had been cheated of some of the credit in for Carver's early short stories. It's available online. It's, I mean, it continues to be an absolutely fascinating uh, uh, issue. And is that... Um because I noticed on your website there was some um, a couple of of the tabs I think were coming soon. Is that a like you'll put that piece up there? But it's already out there. People could find it if they wanted to read. Yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think the best way writers don't generally keep their websites up particularly well anyway, any more than they keep their their apartments particularly clean. And so the place I hear that, that especially yeah, around right, Thanksgiving. You know there. <laughs> so you just want to type it in with New York Times Magazine, and it pops right up from Google or whatever your your search engine may be, but you don't need to go through my website for it. So did you feel like you had to create a website when the book, um, Every Love Story is a Ghost Story, came out, DT? Is that when that sort of, you, you put that website together then? No, I, I, I had a website, I mean, for the for my first book, The Family 
They Couldn't Sleep, which is a book I absolutely adore about an Italian family with a fatal insomnia. And that book was published in 2000 and, in 2006. And I, I put together a website uh, then, and then I just think probably I refurbished it for this uh-huh. book. But, I mean, to be honest, it's, there's no... Everyone is welcome to go and visit dtmax.com, but I don't <laughs> think anyone's going to be overly impressed. Well, d- <laughs> well, not to worry. <laughs> I was very impressed. I was, I was oh, an impressed visitor. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, since all these articles are so available anyway... Exactly. Yeah, uh, and since you know, the, I mean, you can read a snippet of the book on the website. You can read it. We can read a snippet of every love story, the ghost story, the Wallace book. I don't, can't remember if we can read a snippet of the earlier one I don't, there, but you may be able to. I don't. Mm. Well, well, you know what I'm thinking actually was maybe there could be a picture of Max the Beagle there at some point. <laughs> well, I'd have to get his permission though. <laughs> and he's a tough sell. Yeah, he's not cooperative. <laughs> but uh, it's funny because you know, actually, I, I do. Love Max the Beagle, but you know David Wallace loved his dogs um, uh, in a way that is really kind of beyond belief. I mean, they were the primary, in a lot of ways, the primary relationships of his life. I mean, certainly until he met his wife. I have two children, so you know they come out ahead. <laughs> well, not and, particularly and you... cooperative either, but but they are um, wonderful. And so Max the Beagle is now, you know. He's not, there's this old line when does when when you know when when does uh you know when does well the line would be like when does Max the Beagle become a pet you know or become a dog and the answer is when you have children I mean you, know, you can substitute your own dog's name in there oh. but since David didn't have children his dogs always remained very high up on his list in fact there's a letter that that Wallace wrote in every love that I quote in every love story is a ghost story well, one of his dogs dies so David moves David spends much of his professional life teaching at Illinois State. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he moves to, he gets an incredible job offer. He was only in his mid-40s, well, actually early 40s, I think, or maybe even late 30s. But he feels old, and he gets this job offer from Pomona in Claremont, California, and he moves there with his two dogs, and he drives them across country because, you know, they can't fly. And he's, David's pretty neurotic, and like most people who are neurotic, he's neurotic about his dogs. And so, but one of them dies, you know, not not connected, but, you know, a couple of years later or whatever, actually a few months after he gets there, and, and there's a letter where he writes to a friend, Brad Morrow, and he says it's the closest thing to a child he ever had. Oh. Yeah, I think it's it's true. It's interesting. And people who don't, don't have um, maybe pets in that way, like dogs and cats in that way, they have a hard time sometimes understanding that. Right. Like, they think that sounds um, strange, but I, 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 I can understand that. Actually, mm-hmm. myself. Um, right. Well, yeah, but I mean, these were these were you know, David Foster Wallace wasn't the most adept in a certain way of forming relationships, and so these were relationships that he formed in a very also like many writers, right? right? DT. <laughs> well, he's home a lot, so his dog and he were home a lot together. He had two dogs for a lot of the a lot of the time, but I mean, he David Foster Wallace's dogs ruled ruled the house. You know, I mean, they were big dogs, and he gave them complete. Free rain. They used to eat food out of his mouth. They were kind of a gross-out trick in part. <laughs> I love how he never, like, I don't know. He doesn't shy away from things like that, though. It seems Ooh, like shy away from what kind of thing? I don't know. Like doing the things that seem to maybe sometimes cross some 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 borders, or what maybe 
I, I was almost going to say propriety, but I don't think that right. would be even close. But um, but but so you were actually once in the same room together at the when Infinite just there was a, a publisher's party for that. Yeah, exactly. There was a publisher's party in 1996, and I had I was an editor at a magazine, and I commissioned uh, an article on on D- David for Infinite Jest. I mean, it was the the book was Infinite Jest was really the sensation of that year, so it didn't require any great imagination to commission this article, but I commissioned it as a result, you know, I got to go to the party. And um, <laughs> it was a huge party at a club. I think it was the 10th Street Lounge in New York. I'm not sure anymore, but it was either that or Limbo Lounge. I know they they planned it for one and moved it to another. Uh, and so what happened is, um, you know, I walked in in this brightly lit room, you know, a huge room with hundreds of literary people and, you know, movie producers and just the general sort of literati of Manhattan um, prowling around, yammering with each other, of course, Mm. uh, as if they didn't see each other three times a day already. Uh, And, you know, David was, I saw David in my memory, he has on his bandana, but when I look at pictures from the party, you know, he doesn't have a bandana on, so I don't know. Um, And in my memory, he's talking to John Franzen, but there's a picture of that that I've seen, and maybe that that's why I I mean, I know that did happen, but I'm not saying I necessarily saw it happen. Uh, But anyway, and he was across this room, and he looked so unhappy Mm. uh, that I sort of kind of knew in my heart, I I don't really generally go over and introduce myself to strangers anyway, but, you know, you always have a choice in a moment like that of introducing yourself or not. And I just just thought he looked kind of happy without me in his life, you know? Mm-hmm. Little did he know, right? Yeah, yeah. Like how? I don't know. Do you have a how Ouija much, board? How much time we would spend together? What? What's that? <laughs> exactly. How much time you would spend together? But also, I said, do you have a Ouija board? But that you know, uh, yeah. everything I do is a kind of Ouija board, right? I mean, it's an act of conjuring mm. to write a biography for sure. Yes, and also, and and sort of being with people while they're while you're sort of accessing their memories, right? Of of the moments too. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, since I didn't know David alive, I had to create him out of the pieces that he left after his death. So I created him out of hundreds of letters that people gave me that, that David had written them, and interviews with a great many of his friends and some of his enemies, too. You know, his his, his old lovers, his family, his wife, you know, the whole the whole way that you can make a life. You can create somebody's life by asking the people around them who they were. And looking at what, you know, in the case of a writer, you have the advantage that you can read what they've written. And I use a lot of letters in, in every love story, the ghost story, because the letters were absolutely amazing. I mean, David's letters are tremendous. I had no idea they existed before I started writing about him. DT, let's let's take a short break and then we'll, we'll come we'll come back. We'll start with the letters. Um, when we come back, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, DT Max joins us from New York State. We've got Tex Engineering. We'll be right back.
welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, D.T. Max joins us via phone from New York State. Um, and D.T., that was that was The Big Ship by yeah, Brian sure Eno, I think. And so... I know you don't have a copy of your book um, with you, um, where you, where you're speaking to us from. So um, I'll I'll read on page thirty one um, the line where this this um, song enters the the biography. Um, let's see. Um, Wallace advised, let's see, don't do LSD and don't do coke because they're both dangerous and expensive in that order. Wallace advised Washington, but mushrooms are fun and giggly and they make you think you're smarter than you are, which is fun for a while. While they tripped, Wallace and McLagan would listen over and over to The Big Ship by Brian Eno on McLagan's expensive stereo. McLagan had heard, heard birth in it. Wallace thought it captured the earth in the time of the dinosaurs. <laughs> I did remember that. I, that's what, You don't remember everything about your book, but I do remember David thinking that it captured the earth on the land, land before the time of the dinosaurs. And that is that is lovely, isn't it? What now? Yeah. And hearing it now, I think. Oh, I can I kind of see them um, yeah. happily, sort of more of the larger ones that are the leaf eaters rambling around. Sort oh, of. of course. <laughs> no, there's there's no there's no meat eater in that. You know, I was thinking. I hadn't realized that both you and I have initials. Yes. So this is unusual. What what happened to the rest of your name? And I'll tell you what happened to the rest of mine. Oh, okay. Well, mine is just um. That's what is friends that and you? friends and family always called me T. And mm-hmm. when I moved out to um, Michigan for the writing program, I had been sort of writing before in Seattle, and I uh, was just T. Hetzel for the poems then. And so I thought, oh, well, I'll just go by T when I move to Michigan. Mm-hmm. So everyone, but it was weird at first going to the bank and saying, I'm T, and having to not be a friend yeah. or a family member. What about you? No, no, but is it time now for you to reveal to the very patient listeners of your Ann Arbor radio station your <laughs> full name? No, let's not do it. We'll, we'll just not say tonight, it's it is, tremendous, it, tremendous. It, <laughs> it, is, it, is the, it is the first night of Hanukkah and That's the beginning right. of Thanksgiving, not a usual. There won't be another... Uh, night of um <laughs> there won't be hanukkah won't be in on, on the on thanksgiving again for seventy thousand years to you. no like with the dinosaurs yes <laughs> so assuming there'll be a thanksgiving seventy thousand years from now which or hanukkah but it, um miracles do happen yes so maybe now is i'm not pressuring you in the least but <laughs> it feels like it you it wouldn't have to feels... do it again for seventy thousand years <laughs> It feels like it. No, I think we've kept the the listeners waiting long enough to hear right. the All secret right. of your name. And well, no, we, already, we already heard my name is really is Daniel T. Max. So. There's, no, there's really no secret. I lost it. I lost it um, in my early years in New York when there was another Daniel Max living on my block, um, oh. which was weird enough. And... I was just sort of worried that, you know, mail, the vast amounts of mail that I was not getting were probably going to him. <laughs> and so I shortened my name, and then, you know, there are actually early articles by me that have my full name on them. I, I had done a fair amount of journalism before I before I shortened it. And, you know, I kind of liked, I had always been fond of kind of modernism, and so there's a certain amount of initial using on the part of poets, as you would know. In the modernist tradition, I think I kind of liked yeah. I like that, and then DT Max is a lot of if you if you care about it and you take on that name without thinking about it, you find actually it has a lot of different 
meaning. So, for instance, um, Wallace would have been interested in the fact that dt max is a chemical uh, equation or an expression. Oh, right. You mentioned that. What? Yeah. What is well, that? Well, d is delta, so it's it's the maximum change in temperature. Dt max. Not that not that interesting. It shows up all the time. And then it's also um, there's a sneaker. <laughs> you know, I I wouldn't be giving away anything people don't know about authors already to say that I do have a Google alert for my name. And most of the time it's sneaker. Um, it's the sneaker being sold. It's a, it's a very, it was a very popular sneaker in the 90s. I don't know why it's called the DT Max. And maybe one of your listeners will know. Right, they I think could it's call associated in. with Dion Sanders, but I could be wrong about that. But they, they're sold online all the time. Do and you have so, a pair? No, I don't have a pair. I don't actually know what they look like. Um I'd be sort of curious. I think they're basketball sneakers. I don't think you really. I don't play basketball, so I don't know that I'd have much use for them. And they're well, they're quite expensive. I mean, you can actually get one of my books for less than a pair of those a pair of those, those sneakers. I also realized nice, I made nice a mistake. Plug. I told you I didn't know Wallace was such a great letter writer when I started the book. But yeah. earlier in the show, I already told you that I had read his letters, those letters to Don DeLillo, before I'd even. Years before, and I wrote an article about the archives at the University of Texas. But the truth is, I forgot. <laughs> oh. I shouldn't say this because the letters, when I wrote about them for the New Yorker, uh, in it was about 2005, I think, um, were amazing. These letters to Don DeLillo, but you know, life is busy and complicated, and I, I forgot. And so when I started the biography, now I started the biography, the biography, every love story is a ghost story began as a New Yorker piece after David's death. Yes. So when I began the piece after his death, I did not remember that he was a great letter writer. I mean, it, it only, I was reminded of it only when I went to uh, Texas, because what happened is his archives were given to the University of Texas. But that was after, I believe that was after the New Yorker piece had come out. So I got to see the Delilah letters again when I started on Every Love Story is a Ghost Story in earnest, you know, after the New Yorker piece. And and so for the New Yorker piece, because I have a few, like I have the DFW in memoriam in front of me and then other pieces like DFW's nonfiction, Better with Age and Pale King Archive now open. What are you reading from? Um, well, th- these were ones that I found on the New Yorker site. Oh, really? Um, Look for something called The Unfinished. That was the piece I wrote about him. Okay, okay, and that. But and you so, can't do your research on live radio. You have to do it later. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me. I'm just gonna <laughs> yeah, gonna googling. do a little googling and a little yeah. have a little private time. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> um, I'll but, sing the soundtrack from the big ship. That would be yes. Could you? Yeah. <laughs> can you replicate? <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> now everyone's like, seriously, we're driving home listening comes, to, yeah, to DT Max. Yeah. What's the name of the dinosaur? I always think of the land before time when I hear that. You know, what's the name of the, the little dinosaur? Hmm. You don't remember? I leaf don't, eaters. And three, three, horns, three horns are better than leaf eaters. Anyway, oh. it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, you know, I had a question in there for you, DT. Yeah. I'm not sure I can find my way back no, to no. it right now. Here's a question um, about what you were looking at on the New Yorker oh, New Yorker website. No, I don't have a computer screen. I'm sitting here, you oh. know, in in the studio and I can see text through the glass, but uh, I'm not I'm not I'm not looking at a computer. This is yeah, a yeah. human. This is a human interaction, DT. Yeah. Um, but let me ask you this. So, why did you write the piece for the New Yorker? Like what started why did you feel compelled to write that? The actual sort of short answer is that David Remnick, who's the editor of the magazine, 
sent me an email asking if I wanted to write about David's death. And, you know, it's funny, my relationship to David was not, you know, he was someone I had read, but like most, many, many readers, I had not really been following him that closely for some time. I mean, one of David Foster Wallace's fears after Infinite Chess was kind of that he had disappeared. And he said, I had. I mean, it, it's hard to quite get it right. He was certainly on people's he was certainly nobody, he was somebody who was always thought of when important American writers were thought of. Mm. But I think it's also fair to say he was thought of somewhat less with each year and with each book he put out, and that it wasn't entirely fair because, for instance, after Infinite Chest, um, David Foster Wallace published Brief Interviews with Hideous Men, which is a terrific yeah. uh, collection of stories. I'm, I'm not even talking about his nonfiction. And then he published Oblivion, which is a, a more problematic collection of stories. But he was always writing and publishing, and I, you know, I guess people were really saying, like, as he feared they were, like, where's the novel? Where's the next book after Infinite Jets? Mm-hmm. And you know, in the letters that I had for every love story, you know, there are a lot of there are a lot of moments where he's sort of, you know, terrified that he can't get the next book out, you know, and that he can't that he can't be the writer that he was. I mean, it completely haunts him. And one of the discoveries I made that I didn't know about in the, for the New Yorker piece, but found out when I worked on the book, was that, you know, these worries begin even before Infinite Jest is published. There's an extraordinarily sort of stark diary entry or notebook entry he has. And I think, it, if I remember right, it's from late 1995, where he writes, uh, I've gone back to thinking that IJ, you know, Infinite Jest, I've gone back to thinking that IJ is a fluke. Uh, I feel nothing lapidary inside. And that's, you know, he's still, he probably just barely parted with the galleys at that point. Um, now, it's true that with a, you know, with a novel or any book, your, your principal work on it is done before your final work is done on it. You read, you read the copy edit, you read the galleys, and so on. But still, it's an amazing, amazing how quick his sort of joy, joy in it, you know, declined or even collapsed and before the weight and the worry of what, was, what had to come next. And of course, I mean, it never did quite come next. Yes. Yeah. And I, what's interesting too, DT, is I feel like, um, uh, like speaking with friends also who have um, had a, like the success of the first book or the first one that when you, you deliver it, um, you know, you yeah, know the year before it's remember, published. This is, uh, this is actually his third book. Oh, the third book. Well, yeah. or, well, for, for any book, I think it is actually something that happens um, mm-hmm. where you you have the fear, like you can't do it again like that's like um even writing a poem like sometimes if you write one poem even if it's not out in the world uh, making you um famous or wealthy Mm -hmm. you can feel like that there might not be another one that that um but it's but you think someone like david foster wallace might be immune from that but no of course because of his extremes i don't really think i thought he would be immune for i think what surprises me a bit is that how quick it set upon him Uh, i don't i'm not surprised that in 2000 and you know, uh, five, you know, nine years later, David was worried about his ability to get the Pale King done. But I'm a little surprised that he is so worried so soon. Well, you know, I, I just think when you write a poem, you know, there's at least 20 minutes when you go around joyous that you've gotten this poem done. And then, you know, at least not a bad poem. And because novels are so much longer, you think, you know, to be at least a few months when you go around at least waiting for publication, you know, that's the other thing. The book hadn't even been published yet. So uh, it's, 
so clearly, you know, his anticipation of future failure was, was I think, that suggests it was deeper than himself, and not that dependent on the reception of the book, which really hadn't been received yet. You know, we were before, we're in 1995, the book comes out, I think, in February of 1996. And so David, who's 32 at the time, I think, um, is already, you know, kind of breathing in this sort of air of confusion and distress and, and maximum um you know, sort of pro- making everything harder. I mean, he always made everything harder in his life, but he's already making the success harder. It's sad, you know. I think it's a very sad moment. Let's take a short break, and we'll we'll come back, um, DT, and and we'll we'll talk more uh, today on the program. DT Max is speaking with us um, from New York State. His book, Every Love Story Is a Ghost Story: A Life of David Foster Wallace. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be right back. back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hutzel. And today, DT Max is here joining us via phone from New York State, pre-Thanksgiving, and happy Hanukkah to everybody um, out there in radio land um, and beyond. (laughs) 70,000 years. You won't hear T. say that again for 70,000 years. (laughs) Exactly. Although we could do like a, we could do some fake living writers show sometime, right. DT. If future, <laughs> future living writers. Now, I would never question your research, you in text, but you're sure that that song is in my book because I don't remember it. Is it something that David Foster Wallace listens to in college? Yes, I thought I would just read you the section, yeah, yeah. Uh, right, DT. Thanks. So, okay, so we're here, page forty-three. Mm-hmm. Um, Dale Peterson became Wallace's thesis advisor and simply let Wallace do as he wished. Mm-hmm. Um, This was at Amherst College. Wallace could feel the words pouring out, and superstitiously, he tried to follow the same routines day day after day to keep them coming. He had bought a motorcycle jacket from Charlie McLagan and Mm -hmm. wore it whenever he was working on the thesis, listening at one point, for example, to U2's MLK and Bruce Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA over and over as he worked. Uh, Thank you. (laughs) MLK was... That's easier for me to get my mind around than uh, certainly the only thing that, that um, David Foster Wallace and Chris Christie have in common would be a love of, of Bruce Springsteen. But I guess he does he does knit knit different 
disparate groups together. You know, I realized that I didn't end my story, which is the story of the email from David Remnick, and then I started on the research, and I just got more and more into into Wallace. I mean, I'd always read Wallace, and in fact, his book, Broom of the System, which is his first novel, which he wrote while he was in college, of all things. Yeah, at Arizona. Um, yeah. No, no, in college. That's graduate school. Oh, oh, he wrote it before he even got to Arizona. Yeah, he oh, published that's, it while he was in Arizona. That's right. And you said there was, or you wrote about there was a bit of, like, some fallout from that, like maybe even some jealousy or some yeah, different... Yeah, well, sure, because, I mean, the faculty, you know, not not all faculty, I don't want to give away any secrets, but not all MFA faculty are, are either publishing or writing well at any given time. Mm-hmm. And here was this kid who came roaring into town with his 500, 600-page... <laughs> novel and got it published. Uh, but I got more and more into David. And, and, you know, after I published the New Yorker piece, I didn't really feel that I was done. I felt like, one, for one thing, I really felt like I wanted to read David again. I really wanted more David Foster Wallace in my blood. Um, you know, these magazine pieces for the New Yorker, they're long, and they take a long time, but they don't go on forever. So they're sort of like, they're kind of like, you know, unsuccessful relationships, but unsuccessful relationships that actually at some point seemed viable. Meaningful. So yeah. yeah, so they're particularly painful when they end because they're not one-night stands. They're, they're, they're something, you know, and then and then they're gone. And so I missed David, and I missed writing about David Foster Wallace, and I missed reading David Foster Wallace. And I also, you know, I mean, as a writer myself, I was certainly aware after the New Yorker piece ran, which I think was March of 2009, of the sort of, one, the response to the piece, but also just uh, a sense, especially on the Internet, that David interest in David was just growing and growing. And also, I think, very interestingly, a misunderstanding about him was growing and growing. How and so? And that misunderstanding was a kind of quality of turning him into a, some sort of, um, you know, for want of a better word, a kind of secular saint. Right. Like, you mentioned how um, during the research it was... It's, almost surprising to you that people had his lines tattooed on their body. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, people looked to him for something very special, and I thought it was great that they did look to him for some sense of authenticity in, in, in what they felt to be an inauthentic world. And, and I, I think it's valid to look to David for that and important, but I, I think the, mis, the misunderstanding would have been that he himself was, you know, I mean, I, I think the idea of this kind of selfless, egoless, um, anti-corporate, anti-practical, as I say, secular saint, this kind of Mahatma Gandhi in our, in our <laughs> midst, was, you know, it was a natural emanation of both his writing and I think the way that David presented himself in the world in later years. But it wasn't who he was. And I mean, I don't think he even pretended very deeply that it was who he was. You know, he's a what was interesting and exciting about David for me, I mean, frankly, I don't think that person could be a writer that I would be interested in. I think you have to have one foot or two feet or three feet in the, um, if you're a dinosaur, in the, um, you know, in the mundane, in the in the ordinary, which David certainly did. I mean, David was an amazing observer. You know, David Foster Wallace not often remembered because of his writing was so extraordinary. David Foster Wallace was a very good observer of people on the literal level, you know, like 
Like his, he would look at you and he would remember. And his yep, when that enters into his fiction, which I think your biography is so wonderful about, like he'll be having dinner with someone and later on they'll see it's one of their things that they said emerge as a, a right. like a character trait. But in his um I love your preface, the title, um, considering the writer, um, mm-hmm. thinking about consider the lobster. Um right. when he would write pieces like that, the power of observation, um yeah, very incredible. Strong. But it, it's it's there. It's also in, um, you know, that's, I mean, Consider the Lobster and the other experiential essays or travel pieces he wrote are, you know, at least, I wouldn't say they're, they're invented, but they have large aspects, I think, that are not drawn from life, to put it delicately. When he was, it's that paradoxically in his fiction, I think, that he shows the highest fealty to reality, to nonfiction. And so... There are descriptions in the in Infinite Chess that I just assumed were essentially fanciful that actually turn out to be exactly accurate. For instance, Don Gately, the main character in Infinite Chess, is described as being more, I think the phrase is more uh, poured than built. Yes. With the smooth immovability of an Easter Island statue. Uh, and I didn't know what that would look like, but when I, uh, Gately, the real-life Don Gately and I exchanged... Um, you know, pictures. Well, we didn't exchange pictures. Didn't care what I look like, but he sent me pictures. Okay. And uh, and to my amazement, you know, he looked exactly like if you can imagine muscle being sort of poured through a sifter and a settling on a body according to the dictates of gravity. That's exactly what this guy uh, Don Don Gailey, or Big Craig, as he's actually known, looked like. And it was just amazing that. that Wallace had captured that, and then the, there's a further description of Don Gately as having a sort of Prince Valiant haircut, <laughs> which seems really ill-advised on a man clearly as large as Don Gately <laughs> was in real life. And then they, he sent me this picture, and it's a funny picture, because the picture of David Foster Wallace, this guy, Big Craig, and two other residents of, of Granada House, which was the real-life Ennett House, and they're fishing. They're on a chartered fishing boat. And what's weird about that is you don't really think when you always have to remember that David wrote fiction. Like you, when you read Infinite Jest, you just assume that Granada House, Ennett House, was a very grim place. And I think it was a pretty grim place. But it's also true that you know, it wasn't I think quite as grim as he made it out to be. I think he focused on the parts of it that were most depressing or dispiriting or challenging. And so I don't remember a scene in that book where like a bunch of the guys from and it has go fishing on a chartered fishing boat. I mean, you just don't think of them doing it. And and obviously, you know, they <laughs> did do it at least sometimes. And so on this boat ride, Big Craig or Don Gately has on a Harvard sweatshirt, which obviously I would imagine that David must have gotten for him as a joke. Um, and you see that David was tiny compared to these guys. I mean, that's what's true about the descriptions in mm. Infinite Chest. You know, he's not in Infinite Chest, but I mean, he would have been and was, although we think of him as a fairly large guy, but David Foster Wallace was was a was a pygmy on that on that boat. You know, they could have picked him up and used him for 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 chum. <laughs> right. <laughs> glad that they didn't. That, but, glad, yeah, yeah. Me, me, I am glad too. And the, the funny thing is, they all have um, fishing rods and and uh, you know and f- fish on their fishing rods. And, and you know, <laughs> Big Craig is like you know huge snapper and. and David has like this little tiny thing that he caught. It's hilarious. I wonder if Big Craig still has is sporting the Prince Valiant do. I don't know actually. I you know I I don't think I asked him 
delicate. When, delicate. No, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I asked him that. You know, I was, he was. Um, yeah, he was. He was interested in talking to me. I don't think that being in infinite chess was the highlight of his life, particularly. Mm. I mean, I, I don't think he. You know, didn't really. I mean, he was really a guy in in rehab, like all of them. And the important thing for him was, you know, to succeed or fail to get off of alcohol or drugs. You know, and for them, it was. There wasn't really that much room for kind of David's artistic creativity. You know, every love story is a ghost story. Doesn't talk, talk that much about it, but I think you get the sense that they didn't really particularly trust David there. They they thought he was working on something, which is so funny because oh, for us, I see. And for David, you know, it was the it was the crucible experience of his life, and it was. You know, he went in kind of David Foster goes in kind of an ironic, playful character, a guy who wrote Boom of the System, and comes out, you know, writing Infinite Chest and sounding much deeper themes than when he went in. And it's really due to his having joined 12-step programs and, as he saw it, having saved his life from, from addiction. That is that is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you know, and, and but on the other side, they saw him as kind of a, I don't know, I mean, I think different people saw him different ways, but I, I don't think people took him too seriously. I think Big Craig, I quote this in every love story, the ghost story, Big Craig says that they didn't trust him because they saw marijuana as a lightweight addiction. <laughs> right. Huh. Okay. You know, I mean, compared to, you know, alcohol, which was the real, the real demon in their midst. And he struggled with that then also. David did, yeah. yeah. But it, I don't think that, uh, I think he did, but I think really, you know, marijuana was the drug that really floated his boat. It's interesting because for a lot of, I mean, haven't you even heard that, oh, it's not, it's not addictive or something mm-hmm. and that it's just not true. I guess everything affects different, just depending on the person. I think know. that's very true. I mean, I'm, I'm not a doctor and I cannot advise your listeners, <laughs> Right, right. Uh, but I think David had so much anxiety that marijuana probably relieved the anxiety, which whether technically addictive or not would make you want to smoke it a lot. Right. It did the trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, let's take a short break and, and then we'll come back. All can't, right? wait, can't wait to hear what you play. Okay. It's coming up. You've got Living Writers today on the program. DT Max talking with us from New York State. Every love story is a ghost story, a life of David Foster Wallace. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today 
on the program. DT Max is speaking to us from New York State. Um, happy pre-Thanksgiving, everybody. Um, 70,000 years to you. <laughs> and happy Hanukkah. <laughs> Let us know. Just once in 70,000 years, would it be so hard? <laughs> Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I know, I know. You know, um... I showed you mine. D. Daniel T. Thomas. <laughs> it's, I, I think it's so interesting you say, when I lost my name. Yeah, yeah, I lost it. I lost them. Yeah, didn't you feel that way? Well, you never really had one. Yeah. <laughs> you had a little stump of a thing, but... It's true. Mine yeah. was pretty short to start out with, anyway. <laughs> I a, shortened was, it more. Ooh, a there was a wonderful um, novelist wrote a novel about New York literary life named T. Gertler. Is she a relative? No, no, not that I know of. But I've never done that that online, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> find find your find everyone in the the family. Well, everybody who's named T. Everyone, that would be funny. Um, yeah, there's. A, have you seen that um, movie about Grace Lee Boggs yet, DT? The one American Revolutionary, the evolution of Grace Lee Boggs, um, no. which was made by Grace Lee. Because mm-hmm. um, Grace Lee Boggs is a. She's in her 90s. She's um, a, been in Detroit. She was here, you know, when MLK came through pre, you know, I Have a Dream in, mm-hmm. in D.C. when he walked through the streets of Detroit and, and, and gave um, a, a speech there. And um, but but anyway, her Grace Lee, the, the film's maker, um, was doing a project finding all the Grace Lees like in the mm-hmm. U.S. <laughs> and, and that's um, how she found Grace Lee Boggs. But anyway, needs should we talk a little bit about then the, the naming of the book? Um, sure, every sure. love story is a ghost story. Sure. I, uh, you know, I didn't know what to name the book, and I was, I was given many bad ideas. <laughs> what, think, what are some of those? I think one of them was Infinite Fire, if I remember right. Oh. Yeah. You know, Cringeworthy. <laughs> you think, but actually, you know, it's, titles are like spouses. After a while, you don't even see them. So, <sighs> um, sorry about that. No. Um, 70,000 years ago. So what happened is that I was, um, you know, interested in using something David said or wrote. And, and a couple of times at the bottoms of letters, he just put the phrase, every love story is a ghost story, without really much explanation. And then reading through his, some of his stories, I found that, that it pops up from time to time. If you look, for instance, in, um, uh, there's this weird story, I think it's in brief interviews, and, and the this, this story, I always get the title wrong, but it's I Sold Sis, is the beginning of it. Do you have, if you have your brief interviews there, it's almost unpronounceable. It's kind of this odd parody of a Hollywood uh, Hollywood article. Do you know the story I mean? No, no, I... And I you don't only, have your books there. And I anyway, only, I only readers, have your, your book here. Your readers can immediately dig out their brief interviews, but uh, I always get the title slightly wrong. Anyway, it's in there, and then in The Pale King, his posthumous book, mm. there's a very kind of a quiet, strange moment. The book's one of the ambitions of The Pale King was to recreate what it's like to be bored, and the only pages that actually try to do that are a handful of pages which consist of nothing but different members of this IRS group <laughs> in Peoria, Illinois, turning their pages as they do their research. And then in the middle of, of this list of so-and-so turns the page, Drinian turns the page, so on, you know, and so on. <laughs> so forth, there is the phrase, every love story is a ghost story again. So it was on his mind, and so I, I liked it, because to me it, it had the quality of a couple of things that I really thought were relevant. 
to what I was working on, which is, I mean, the most obvious one is, you know, as a biographer, you, you generally have, have feelings, as I certainly did for David, and you're, you know, you love your subject. You may not approve of everything your subject does, but you love your subject. So I love David. And, mm. of course, I was chasing a ghost. I mean, I didn't start writing about David till after his death. I also thought for David, you know, I had no idea what the phrase really meant for him. I, I can't say that I know now. I think one reason that he might have liked it was that it has a sort of, um, you know, it's all about story. You know, it's every love story is a ghost story. It's two kinds of stories. And David was so deep into story and writing was so much a part of his life. In a lot of ways, it really saved his life for a long time that I think the phrase much of a very deep sense for him that, you know, he was chasing the, his love for, for writing was also in a way chasing a ghost because, you know, you try to write, but as I'm sure you know in your poetry, um, you know, it, it's very unclear what you're, you have this love for what you do, but it's very unclear what you're trying to achieve. It's all very diaphanous and mm-hmm. complex and vague, and, you know, you're just always trying, you're always yes. appearing around the next corner hoping to get whatever it is you're trying to get. And I felt that that might be what the phrase meant for David. But then the weirdest thing is I couldn't figure out where, where he, he got every love story as a ghost story, because in his letters... These early letters, which are in his sort of postmodern period, he attributes the phrase to, well, to Virginia Woolf, who apparently never said it or wrote it. <laughs> um, and on one in one of these letters, he attributes he attributes it to Virginia Woolf on the Merv Griffin show, right? <laughs> and in another to Merv Griff, uh, to uh, Virginia Woolf on the Johnny Carson show. So, you know, I'm, I don't think I don't think Virginia Woolf ever did Merv Griffin. Right. <laughs> uh, but she was on Carson. <laughs> so, I, you know, it was interesting. And then it turns out that the phrase exists in a short story written by um, the absolutely spectacular author of The Man Who Loved Children, um, whose name you'll supply for me. Christina Stead. Thank you. God. <laughs> you know, I got Max here on my lap and oh. turkeys in the oven and vodkas. A lot goes around the turkey. 70,000 years. But the weird thing is that it's only apparently 70 years ago that it last took place on Thanksgiving. If my children's reports are accurate, and I don't don't know that they are, I don't want you to get a ton of letters and emails. By the way, it's completely off subject, but when you read the Madame Psychosis part of Infinite Justice, I mean, you have read it. Madame Psychosis is a a young woman who runs a very um, sort of edgy radio program for MIT, I was curious whether you had like any sort of you know particular sense of connectedness to the act of, of uh, to, to you know being kind of a college radio host or hostess. <laughs> well, you're putting me on the spot yet again, DT here. Um, <laughs> but um, my I don't I don't have um, see my relationship is 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 different, and I feel like I I know him from the like his nonfiction. Mm-hmm. Rather than infinite chest, but I know I have connections of people who I've loved dearly or who or who I still love, um, who have like had like a deep connection right. with David Foster Wallace, and also, um, yeah, I, I don't I just, know. The reason so, I ask is that I mean, to, you know, we all come to any interview discussion with our own thoughts and so on, but I I can't really get Madame Psychosis in this wonderful radio show with these strains. A lot of the radio show is silence, um, but it has that that quality that's, you know, of which I think your radio show has it as well, at least tonight, of like sort of going out into the 
ionosphere, you know, of ears open and radios and, you know, kind of pure thought emanating out into, I guess, the Ann Arbor night. You're in Ann Arbor, right? Yes. Thanks. You know, that's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said, DT. Thank you. Well, 70,000 years, you'll hear another great compliment. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and now I am inspired. I will like I feel I feel a little bit embarrassed to say that I haven't had I totally my own wasn't putting infinite... you on the spot for that. I thought maybe you'd been given the passages or something. No, it's a long it's a no. thousand seventy nine page book. But there is a part about a woman with the punning name of Madame Psychosis who runs this very weird radio show. Um <laughs> and it's very beautifully done in Infinite Jazz, where you get a sense of it kind of bringing in all, you know, people listening and being called in from the disparate places wherever they are to this, this woman, this alluring and kind of confusing woman. She wears a veil, and nobody, I don't think it's really clear in the novel whether she wears a veil because she's <laughs> either hideously disfigured by, I think, by an acid attack, if I remember right, or the most, or someone so beautiful that, like, people can't, just to look on her is to, you know, to freeze, like almost like a kind of living version of the Infinite Jest video cartridge that people um, watch in the book. And anyway, so just going on to back, back to Christina Stead. So Christina Stead uses a phrase, but it's in an unpublished story. So I have no idea how the phrase got from Christina Stead to David Foster Wallace. I just don't know. I mean, I, I, my guess is that there must be something I never found where someone discusses her work or he had some, when he, when David was at University of Arizona, there was a, a fellow named Richard Elman there, not the Joyce biographer, but a different Richard Elman, who was sort of an international reader, and he may somehow have provided the, he might possibly have read the unpublished story by Christina Stead. I don't know. I hardly recommend your readers, Christina Stead's The Man Who Loved Children. DT, what does it mean? Like, wh- how did you know you were done with this? Because when you said something I never found, I've and, and listening to you here, I feel like you you've lived with you lived with David for so long. You were also sort of this detective and and talking to people that he was close with. Uh, yeah, what is it like to? F- when did you know to let go of the book and have it finished? And yeah, it's a great. I mean, it's a great question. I, I feel that you don't. You know, when you do a biography of someone who lived so recently, you really can't pretend you have a, that you've completed the information about that person any more than a year spent, um, you know, talking or thinking about any other friend of yours would give you complete information. But I felt very much by the end that I understood a David Foster Wallace and that the sort of the letters that people were still giving me about David were confirming statements and ideas I already had put into every love story as a ghost story. Mm. That you know, it wasn't that there wasn't more data, but there wasn't there weren't more surprises, which doesn't mean I couldn't be surprised, but I felt like I kind of understood him and his psyche and his needs and, you know, I don't pretend that biography can kind of explain the creative act on the deepest level. So that wasn't even what I was trying to do. I was trying to give readers a good way to understand his work too and you know, that I felt I was I had I had been able to to do that's an almost a lack of active literary criticism, but connected to the act of biography. When all those things reached a point where I felt like the story was a story that, as I understood it and as I wanted to tell it, I didn't worry about the fact that yeah, there are there are things I don't know. You know, it wasn't meant to be the kind of book where like where every you know it wasn't Richard Elman, the other Richard Elman's biography of James Joyce, which I think probably takes him month by month through his life. Oh, jeez. Yeah. I very much didn't want to do that. I, I felt like a life has a different shape. In memory, mm-hmm. our lives have different shapes. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, 
you don't remember your life by, month by month at all. You remember the highlights. You remember odd little things. You know, you remember things that no one expects you to do. In a lot of ways, I wanted every love story as a ghost story to have the feel of memoir, but memoir written by someone who wasn't, you know, didn't live the experiences of the book. But I wanted it to have that intimacy and that delicacy and that, that, that gentleness before information. You know, in memoir, I think good memoir anyway, you never really, you never really hate yourself, you never really love yourself. It's always an act of inquiry. And Lovely. I wanted this to be an act of inquiry, as if almost David, had, almost if David were doing the inquiring. And I think, you, and you, you allowed that to be with using parts of the letters and his own voice, and uh, yes, and and how, and also to trust that because what you wanted was the act of inquiry, that that was, um, you were the best then person to be entrusted with this. Well, thank you. Now, now I feel complimented. Do, do do you ever feel a pressure to have to speak for him now? No, I mean, you know, I, I was never um, uh, um, somebody who, you know, I, I, I don't think anyone who reads every love story, um, including people who love David and have devoted their lives to reading him, they all understand that my relationship to David is the relationship of somebody who you know, who was a writer about David and not somebody who was trying to be David. I mean, when our styles are so different. And two, you know, honestly, I think that's a moment people have with David Foster Wallace when they're in their 20s or their early 30s, where everything they write sounds like David Foster Wallace and everything they think sounds like David Foster Wallace and, you know, on goes the bandana. Because the view of the world is so powerful and the stance, I think, in front of the world is incredibly powerful and very pure, at least as it's distilled by... uh people in their 20s and 30s. I was never that. I mean, as I told you earlier in the show, I was never that person, never never wanted to be. I mean, I have I have a much, I think, a very different relationship to David. So I don't think people sort of expect me to channel David. Like, they don't think I'm going to walk into a room and, you know, um, give the, give David's Kenyan college address or some variation on it. You know, I love and admire David, but we're very, very different. Well, we, we won't, I won't call you then for the, um, the living <laughs> well, writers when we're doing the, the, the dead, the not living writers show. <laughs> I know it's so weird that I'm on the living writers. I assume that's a reference to me. It is. It is DT. Uh, thank goodness. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was a little bit, I didn't want to, you know, I enjoy, I wanted to talk to you to be honest, to ask you about your name. And so I didn't want to blow it and get knocked <laughs> off the show. If there was a misunderstanding that David was living writer. <laughs> D.T. Max, I have loved talking with you today. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Hanukkah. We're out of time, so I have to say goodbye now. All right. Well, see you in, you know, <laughs> 70,000 years. Thanks for having me on. And call in any time. Seriously, <laughs> D.T. Don't wait. Don't wait. <laughs> <laughs> um, hang on the line, and, and we'll, I'll say goodbye after we sign off the show. Okay? Okay. Um, All you, right. Thanks, thanks again, and thanks to everyone for listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Stealing your love away
cowboys these days. Not real ones like Kun Hurdu Hontoa. Oh, hello. This is Kun Hurdu Hontoa. You're listening to WCBN FM and Arbor. the sports report but it's going to be the Esquivel report today for your listening pleasure so sit back and keep making the stuffing (laughs) 